Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One of the leading ideas in the basic income space right now is that of a social wealth fund similar to what's going on in Alaska, where they take state revenue mostly from their oil funds and provide a universal dividend to every person there. And this idea has been taken and built upon and looking at whether potentially it could be replicated both in other states and also potentially ultimately at the national level where we could actually have this big fund that's paying out these universal dividends to everyone in the country that might at some point actually start to approach a full universal basic income. And one of the big thinkers on this topic is Matt Brunig. He is the founder of the People's Policy Project, and he recently published a a very detailed, expansive uh, proposal for a social wealth fund for the entire United States. So Jim got to sit down with Matt Brunig and discuss his proposal. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me. Now, in late 2017, you wrote a piece in the New York Times about a specific model for financing a universal dividend program, which you dubbed a social wealth fund. We've actually talked a few times about social wealth funds on the podcast in the past, but just to make sure that everyone is up to speed, can you generally explain what a social wealth fund is and how it works? Yeah, in its broadest definition, a social wealth fund is a collective pool of generally financial assets that is owned by the government, and the return on those assets is used for social welfare purposes. Uh, In my specific version of a social wealth fund, the government creates a new fund, gives every person in the country one share of ownership in the fund, then it fills the fund up with assets. As those assets generate a return, that return is then paid out to the owners of the fund, which again is everyone in America who would own one share of the fund. So that's the basic model uh, for my particular implementation of the general idea. So on that note, you released a quite extensive and specific proposal last month for the creation of an American social wealth fund, which you dubbed the American Solidarity Fund. Can you tell us more about what what specifically is in that proposal? Yeah, so it is, uh, like I said, in broad strokes, the government will create a new fund. I call it the American Solidarity Fund. It will also create a new management company, which will be a government corporation. That management company will be charged with running the fund, basically investing it just like any uh, asset manager does uh, in the private sector. Um, every American would be given uh, one share of ownership in the fund, and every year they would receive a dividend based on the returns on that fund. The big, um, biggest, I guess, question mark that the paper tries to answer is how do you get assets into the fund in the first place? Right? We, we know how to basically run a fund. It's just like a pension fund or a mutual fund. It's not a complicated thing. We know how to pay out dividends to people. Um, that happens, again, in the financial industry all the time. It also happens that the government sends out checks to people quite regularly, whether Social Security or similar. Uh, but the big question is, how do you get money into the fund? How do we get assets building this fund? And the paper proposes a number of approaches to that. One is leveraged purchases, meaning that the government would basically borrow money and then use the money to buy up assets. And since 
the interest rate on government debt is lower than the rate of return that you generally get by investing in the stock market or similar, they could take advantage of that spread and make money. Another approach is called monetary seniorage. The basic idea is right now when the Federal Reserve wants to increase the money supply, what it does is it creates new money and it goes out and buys treasury bonds. Instead of buying treasury bonds, it could go out and buy any sort of asset, including stocks, bonds, real estate. Uh, And in fact, the Bank of Japan has been doing this with their central bank for the last 10 years or so. Uh, And then finally, um, taxes, good old, good old fashioned taxes. I have all sorts of taxes, uh, taxes on initial public offerings when a company goes public, taxes on mergers and acquisitions, taxes on fund management, financial transactions, taxes, et cetera, et cetera. Basically targeted taxes on the wealthy, the revenues of which could go to fill up this fund and create assets that we all own an equal share of. Now, you use the Alaska Permanent Fund as as a general model for the American Solidarity Fund. That fund also revenue there comes specifically from oil in the state, but as far as once the fund's in place, they invest that, people get that dividend, very similar model. But one potential distinction between the two is how fund investments might be used to influence corporate behavior. The Alaska Permanent Fund is completely passive the shareholder voting rights conferred by their investments are not used at all. But for the American Solidarity Fund, you suggest that those voting rights could potentially be used to exercise public influence, either by representative voting or more directly by some manner of popular or proxy voting. What motivated you to include that design component in your proposal? You're right. I I believe that Alaska doesn't take a very activist stance with its holdings. Um, I'm not sure if it ever votes on shares or if it ever has negotiations with company directors. But the Norwegian fund or funds that I cover in the paper, they take the opposite approach. So the uh, um, government pension fund global, which is their big $1 trillion wealth fund, they vote on almost all the shareholder votes. They have thousands of meetings a year with with company directors trying to influence company behavior. So I kind of uh, adopted that model. As to why, you know, my goal in this uh, is is not just to reduce wealth inequality, is not just to reduce income inequality through the basic dividend, but also to um, socialize control of companies to some to some degree. Right. Um, you know, I don't think it's if, if if this fund doesn't vote its shares, then you have to ask yourself, well, what shares are going to be voted? And the shares that are going to be voted are whichever ones are still held by private owners. And realistically, the private owners of financial assets and especially shares, um, those private owners are very affluent people. And I'm trying to counteract their influence over our economy and make it to where we have more social control over the economy, um, in addition to leveling out wealth inequality and leveling out income inequality. So something you just touched on, which is, I would say, fairly unusual about your proposal, is that you are aiming to tackle wealth inequality, not just income inequality. In my experience, people's understanding of wealth inequality and how that differs from income inequality is often quite limited, even amongst those who work on these sorts of issues. And I realize this could 
probably take an entire episode in itself, but can you briefly talk about that distinction, why it matters, and, and what implications it has for policy design? Yeah, no, I think you're right that oftentimes, actually, you'll find people use the word wealth and income interchangeably. It's a, there's a sort of, uh, you know, or they'll use rich and wealthy interchangeably, even though these are somewhat different concepts. But, you know, I mean, in broad strokes, wealth is what's, you know, in your bank account, if you will, and income is what's in your paycheck. Or another way to put it is wealth is the stock of things you own and income is the flow of money that you get on a periodic basis. Um, And the importance of wealth inequality, I mean, there's so many things that are important about it, but, you know, I mean, broadly speaking, wealth equates to power in the economy. Um, So whenever people are appointing boards of directors on companies, the way that works is the shareholders get to do that. Well, who owns shares in U.S. companies? If you look at Federal Reserve surveys, they show that around 90% of company shares are owned by the top 10% of Americans. So this is a huge layer of basically societal management that's occurring at the corporate board level. Um, We have thousands of companies and tens of thousands of board members and they're sort of managing production on a day-to-day basis. And who appoints those those managers, the really relatively small slice of the public, the wealthiest people in the country. Um, And so, you know, if you have a more egalitarian mindset, you got to be focused not just on making sure people have enough money to buy, you know, basic necessities and food and housing, but also you want to try to shift power in the economy so that the direction of the economy is not being governed by a small slice of people. And so for that, you also have to make sure wealth gets spread out. And so the social wealth fund uh, is sort of my approach at doing that. Unlike most other proposals for that, that aim towards some sort of universal basic income, which is what you see this could potentially reach if, an, if enough wealth were moved into the fund, when the income is taking the form of dividends from a collectively owned asset pool, you have more potential to instill a sense of ownership amongst people than if it's just a regular transfer. I, I know that's something that was important in your proposal. Can you say what role do you see that playing in if, if this policy is enacted? Yeah, so, so one of the things that you have to think about when designing any kind of program in a democratic country is the recognition that at some future point, the government is going to be controlled by the other side. You know, whatever side you happen to be on, it's going to be controlled by the other side. And so you have to design programs that are going to be sticky or resilient in the face of, you know, uh, a government that maybe does not like them. So Social Security is a good example of that. Uh, Republican thought leaders and the think tanks, they often write very negatively about Social Security, but you notice when they get in power, they don't ever seem to do a whole lot about it. And the dividend structure And the wealth fund structure is designed with that in mind, because the idea is if you give people a share 
of this fund. If you say, look, you own one share of the American Solidarity Fund. And in the paper, I, I, we even put up, we even mocked up an app where you can like see your share and you can watch it grow over time, just like you might, you know, check your 401k or whatever. If you kind of get it in their hands and impress upon them that this is your wealth, you own it, then it, I think it becomes a lot harder for someone to come around and take it from them. Because then at that point, it's, it feels like you're being stolen from, you know, like a, a cut in a basic income that's a sort of more conventional basic income policy is just like, well, that's a cut in benefits or a cut in taxes. You say, well, that's just a cut in taxes. But taking my dividend, taking my share of ownership, you are stealing from me or legit legitimately taking an asset from me that I own. And I think that's going to be a lot harder to pull off um, for a for politicians that care about public approval, you know. I'm curious, particularly in, in your choice of naming for the fund, calling it the Solidarity Fund, is, is that a component you also see with, with the ownership aspect, that this is something that would make people feel like they're more tied together with one another? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I chose the name for a number of reasons. There's a French um, fund and tax that uh, uses uh, the word solidarity or the French equivalent of it. And um, so that was kind of motivating. But also generally, yeah, the idea of solidarity is we're all in this together. We're all going to share, you know, an injury to one is an injury to all. It's trying to conjure up that that notion. Um, which is different if you want to kind of go back to the French uh, Revolution uh, slogans of uh, equality, um, solidarity, or, or rather equality, fraternity, uh, solidarity. What? Oh, no, liberty. Like it's, it, it conjures up that fraternal notion um, of like a, a collective enterprise that, you know, we're all part of as opposed to a more atomized understanding of uh, an individual entitlement that is separate from, you know, I don't know, a collective uh, enterprise. So with the release of this proposal, not everyone has immediately left it. You've, you've had a few people who have, have raised concerns and critiques. What have been some of the most common pushbacks that you've, you've gotten on the proposal? And are there some of them that you think have merit? If not, what are what are the ones you're getting that don't make sense for whatever reason? It's a little hard to categorize all of them. I would say a, a good critique that is in most of the criticisms or implied in most of the criticisms is that this is not the most important issue. You know, uh, the U.S., we still have 30 million people who don't have health insurance, uh, for instance. That's a, a more pressing issue, if you will, than than this. And I would tend to agree with that, that we, we have a lot of issues that are perhaps more important than getting a fund built. Um, but, you know, I never said it's the most important policy, I guess, would be my, my response to that. So it partially depends on how you understand the proposal. So if you are, if you understand it as a more socialistic proposal, because it does have its roots in market socialist thought, then if you're anti-socialist, uh, if you're libertarian, if you don't like the idea of having a big social owner who has power to some degree over the economy, then you don't like it for that reason, of course. And you say, hey, why do we need 
rights to socialize the ownership of a bunch of wealth. Why can't we just use taxes and transfers and leave ownership in the hands, uh, you know, in private hands as, as it already is? Um, and, you know, that's just kind of an ideological uh, critique. And, you know, we can agree to disagree on whether a private ownership is uh, the best model for this, uh, for, for how wealth should be controlled in the economy. Um, if you understand it as a, a kind of, I don't know, market capitalist um, uh, Frankenstein creature, if you will, and you're like um, sort of very left wing, you might say this is a sellout. This uh, we need real socialism, and this is not real socialism. Um, and I've certainly got my fair share uh, of that online. So. It is an interesting proposal in some ways because it does straddle the line. It, it looks a lot, if you want to look at it a certain way, you can say, hey, uh, this is advocating uh, that wealth be socialized into a central fund that everyone owns. Isn't that collective ownership of the means of production? Isn't that what Marx was going on about? Uh, and you can also look at it and say, hey, this is just a mutual fund. This is just shares. This is just uh, finance and financial assets. Uh, isn't that what capitalists and libertarians, isn't that what they're all about? And, you you know, you can kind of view it how you want to view it. And I found people who have viewed it both ways. And therefore, it's gotten attacks from the left and attacks uh, from the right um, based on this different way of kind of looking at it, depending on how you sort of twist your head. Yeah, I, I, I will just say, following the conversation online, I, I have, I've seen both of those attacks as well. So now that this proposal is out there, what do you see as the next steps for how this policy can move forward? You know, realistically, the way a think tank proposal makes waves um, is you get a politician to adopt it. Um, and so we're going to have a few... We're going to have a pretty new Congress coming up soon. It seems like a lot of seats are going to change hands and a lot of new people are going to come in, especially Democrats. I don't expect any Republicans are going to be interested in this proposal. And so, you know, depending on the ambitiousness of some of them and who's looking for fresh ideas, fresh, fresh things to associate themselves with, uh, maybe I can get one of them to, to pick it up. And uh, maybe I can get one of the existing um, politicians to pick it up. Um, so that's the basic move from this point. It's been covered in a lot of media outlets. It's kind of out there in the policy wonk sphere, such as it exists in D.C. And the only step forward really is getting a politician behind it. Um, I suppose the other alternative is like some sort of mass movement, but I don't think I'm capable of, <laughs> of leading something like that. So um, uh, that that's where, where I'm focused at this point is, is finding a friendly politician who, who wants to do something bold and, and seeing if they'll adopt the idea as their own. Well, Matt, those were all the questions that I had. Anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I guess it's worth mentioning, if we didn't kind of cover it already, that there's a distinction between people who want to use basic income to replace the welfare state and people who see it as a supplement to the welfare state. And I, I kind of view basic dividends in the second pot, right? The goal of the basic dividend is not to replace uh, social security or public health care or things like that is to complement it. 
And that's in part why I'm trying to get the money from capital income as opposed to trying to redirect existing um, tax tax income. Um, so I know that's a big tension in this in this world, and so this is uh, more on 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 that side, the UBI as supplement as opposed to UBI as replacement. That was Jim Pugh and Matt Bruning on the Basic Income Podcast. One thing I found fascinating about that was just in how much policymaking you can do within revenue generation and the details of the fund itself. It's not just come up with money from somewhere. It You can really in some ways remake the country or, or a significant portion of it through how you collect that money and distribute it. I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's an area that people have not actually spent nearly as much time as they should. Because as you say, where money comes from, I mean, that can be as important as, as what you're doing with it. And when we talk about these ambitious new proposals that, I mean, Bernie Sanders and other folks are throwing out there, the conversation is almost never on that. There's, there's these kind of few main buckets of like, oh, like, we'll take the money from rich people, maybe, or from corporations, maybe that's higher income taxes, maybe that's higher corporate taxes. But there isn't much thinking generally, at least that has made it up into the bigger conversation about some of these more creative approaches for, for how we might fund big things and also how we might tap into the massive wealth that's out there. Yeah, and I really like his concept of everyone having a share because it provides that sense of ownership. And you know, just with the recent examples of Finland and Ontario, both of you know, the Finland trials you know, supposedly not going to continue past its current, um, you know, it, it, its current plan in Ontario may be canceled at some point soon. And both of those are just because a government that was not sympathetic to basic income came in. And so when he was started talking about how you have to plan for when a government that doesn't like this plan takes power, because that will inevitably happen, the fund itself or whatever it is has to be politically resilient enough. And so I think I liked how much thought he put into that. Yeah, I think that points to something which often gets overlooked in policy conversations, which is that when you're designing policy, you can't just be thinking about the immediate economics if you really want something that's going to stand up in the modern political context. You need to be thinking about what are the politics of the day, what are, how is this going to proceed, what is the psychology people are going to have as a result of this policy. And those are all really important factors if you're going to actually be able to create something, A, that passes, and B, as you say, that doesn't get torn away when something shifts with the political winds. Yeah, and I just thought it was a, a good reminder because my, my general attitude has been like, well, once people are getting money, that's going to be incredibly popular. But we saw um, in our episode with Bill Wilikowski in Alaska that he's saying, yes, getting money is popular, but that fund is always under threat, the Alaska Permanent Fund. And, and so, yeah, it's the popularity of the program is what sustained it up until now, but it is something that you can't just take for granted. I also thought it was really important that Matt shared his views around how this is tackling wealth inequality beyond just income inequality and income insecurity. And that is something that I think needs, I, I think it, there's a lot of value in having that be part of the basic income conversation to a large degree because a lot of the pushback that we've had around basic income from, at least from folks on the left, is that this isn't actually tackling underlying dynamics with the way our economy works today. And so if this is just 
papering over a lot of these underlying issues of, of who is making the decisions in our country, then the basic income alone may be treating the symptoms and not actually the, the roots of it. And, and tackling something like wealth inequality may move us in that direction um, and may allow us to, to then build alliances with a lot more folks who are concerned about that. Yeah, I thought he made an excellent point that income and wealth are often used interchangeably when that's really not true. And, um, and that so much of, of the value, the money out there would be considered wealth instead of income and to address inequality itself, the actual inequality between people, you do need to not just go after income, but also go after wealth. Uh, I appreciated his proposal on, for that as well. One last thing, I, I thought it was good towards the end of the conversation that this came up, that, that Matt himself admits this isn't supposed to solve all the problems. This is a policy that potentially could, could be pretty transformative, but on its own, it's not going to make everything work and, and in fact may not be the most high priority policy in this moment, something like universal health care. You could very well argue that that is a more urgent thing to be pushing for in this moment, but that this could do a lot of good and that it could set us up in the future to be able to, to better figure out where we go from there. And I, I think that's something so often in policy debates, we pigeonhole ourselves or our opposition with saying, oh, does this does your policy do everything? No? All right. Well, we shouldn't talk about it then. Let's move on to the next thing. And I think instead we should say, does, does this help people and does this position us to do more? And I think from that respect, I feel like a social wealth fund does, does have a ton of potential here. All right. That'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Uh, please rate us and review us and subscribe on the podcast service of your choice and tell your friends we are always looking for more people to join in this conversation. See you next week. Mm-hmm.